Future Sense is a podcast edited from the radio show of the same name, broadcast on Bay FM in Byron Bay, Australia at bayfm.org. Hosted by Nick Jeans and well-known international futurist Steve McDonald, Future Sense provides a fresh, deep analysis of global trends and emergent technologies. How can we identify the layers of growth, personally, socially, and globally? What are the signs missed, the truths being denied? Science, history, politics, psychology, ancient civilizations, alien contact, the new psychedelic revolution, cryptocurrency, and other disruptive and distributed technologies, and much more. This is Future Sense. Hi. <laughs> How are you? Good. Thank you so much for coming down to do this, or up really from up where really, you are. Yeah, from, from the Umbaran way, yeah. Yeah, good place down there, man. It is such a nice place to live. It's lovely. I've been there, I think, well, about nine years now. Mm. Yeah, and I love it. It's great. So good. There's something really cool about the uh, landscape of the Gold Coast, how you've got so much different range of, well, I mean, as far as you're, if you're down from Burley downwards, yeah. I can't, I don't go any further than Broad Beach North because yeah. it's just, I don't know what surface paradise is, but it's bullshit. And then, but coming down this way, I mean, you have these beautiful beaches and then you go inside to the hinterland, you've got farmland, you've got hills, you've got mountains, yeah. and you've got the rainforest down where you go. You know, it's an old massive volcano, don't you? Really? Yeah, yeah. If you look at the satellite photo oh on God. Google Maps, you'll see the border ranges are like the northern edge of the caldera and it hooks around um, wow. the back of sort of the, the Byron, Yukai, Mount Warning area, Wollongong area. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, that's so that's, cool. I think that's part of the reason why the energy is so interesting. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah. What do you think about that when you say energy is interesting here? What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, it's, it's known that this area was a, an important healing place for the indigenous people. Mm. Uh, and that trend seems to be continuing to the present day. I mean, so many people come to Byron Bay for healing, personal healing, mm. and there's a, an oversupply of healers there, you know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there seems to be something to it. Uh, I've heard talk, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I've heard talk that there's a lot of black obsidian crystal underneath the ground due to the volcanic history of the area. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm not sure if that's true or not. Hmm. What is black obsidian supposed to do? Uh, I, don't, I don't know. To be honest with you, I'm not a crystal <laughs> expert. <laughs> that's but, good. But, you know, crystals um, crystals have a frequency. I mean, that's, you know, we use crystals in our radios mm. to pick up radio broadcasts and those sorts of things. Uh, so they play some sort of communication role and they have an impact on us in various ways, yeah. Because essentially we are um, a being that's created out of frequency, more or less. I think it's useful to to look at it that way, yeah. Yeah, okay. Because uh, I was watching your lecture, I watched the lecture that you gave about these kind of different phases of consciousness, more or less. And it's a scary thing to start talking about because you can end up in this like sort of woo-woo world where it's like, oh, consciousness, they're just raising the, I know. you know, <laughs> lay a crystal on your chest and save the world or whatever. And yeah. maybe you are. And that's yeah. the funny thing about it is I don't fucking know, as if you would know. And I heard you say something great on a podcast just um, just before you were talking on this martial arts podcast that you do. Yeah. Um, and you said... Uh, that science, as soon as we stop being able to question science, it becomes dogma. Yeah. And would you mind talking about that a little bit? Sure. Um, it, it seems to be a, a common thing these days that people latch on to some scientific finding and then they, they really, it becomes dogma for them, you know, it becomes yeah. the law and it can't be questioned. But 
science itself is is the practice of inquiry. I mean, yeah. you know, at its purest level, science is about coming up with an idea about something and then experimenting and testing the idea to see what results you get, you know, and then whatever results you get ought to be repeatable if you go through the same process again, you know, and, and that's really the essence of traditional science. Mm. It's about being open and discovering knowledge. And science came historically after the sort of agricultural era of humanity um, where we were mainly looking to some higher authority to find out what was true and yeah. find out the nature of the world. And usually that was some kind of religious god, right? Yeah. Um, and then with the scientific and industrial revolutions, we went through this big shift where we started to realise that actually, no, we can find information out for ourselves if we go through this process of inquiry mm. and testing and experimenting, you know. Um, but it, I, these days, um, <clears throat> some science is becoming dogma, as you say, and I think one of the biggest examples of that is the whole climate change issue where, you know, people yeah. say, no, the science is in, this can't be questioned, this is the way it is, and effectively that's not science. <laughs> yeah, man, because it has to be questioned. That's the whole point of science. Science it is does. an inquiry. Yeah. Inquiry proof, inquiry proof. That's yeah. all it is, yeah, it's right? Ne never finished, yeah. Yeah, wow. It's. I mean, what kind of dangers do you see of us not being able to question science? Well, um, I think one of the biggest dangers that I see at the moment on a global scale is the climate change debate mm. where so many people are convinced that they know how our climate works. But actually, we don't have a computer powerful enough to simulate or model the climate accurately. And, and that's obvious because we can't predict, you know, short term weather changes and, and our long term predictions that we've been making over the last few decades about climate are generally wrong, right? There's mm. no one's been accurate with their predictions. Um, and if we start to build um, plans to do things on false assumptions, then we're setting ourselves up for a massive fall. Oh, fuck, yeah. Right? I, I just read an article in the last couple of days uh, in the media about some um, university in the US that's going to do this experiment where they're going to put a massive balloon up and block out the sun. Uh, and they're doing it as an experiment to see whether that could be done large scale to cool the planet because of this global warming idea, right? And, I mean, what if we're wrong about that? What if we actually introduce technology that starts to cool the planet down and we find out that all our assumptions about the long-term global warming trend are wrong and we're actually accelerating, you know, the cooling trend into a mini ice age? <laughs> I mean, you know, th those sorts of things will be, I think, massively disruptive because this is something that's already... Uh, got some momentum so it's it's an area that we need to watch very carefully what do you think is actually happening i think that we're in a long-term cooling trend uh, i've spent a lot of my life particularly my adult life studying the dynamics of complex adaptive systems and how they change and particularly applying that to human consciousness mm. but of course you can apply it to any complex adaptive system and our climate is a complex adaptive system and when these systems go through change, they don't take a linear trajectory, okay? Um, but what we're doing at the moment is generally um, the, this, the thinking around climate change is that it's getting warmer and it's going to keep getting warmer on, in a linear way. But complex systems don't change that way. 
Mm. Uh, when complex systems start to change, they spike in different directions. So you'll get like uh, increases in heat, but also increases in cold, mm. uh, and that's pretty much what we're seeing at the moment. If you if you really look at what is being reported, uh, like just in the last few days, there's been record cold in Asia, and also in North America, as huh. the as the winter comes on. So I think. There's no doubt that the climate is changing. The climate never stops changing. It's always changing. Right? <laughs> yeah. uh, and we can look back and see these huge cycles of warming and cooling that have been going on for a long time. Um, but to think that there's going to be a linear trend of warming until we all fry like eggs in a fry pan is just ignoring the, you know, the actual evidence. The evidence is not pointing to that. Mm. And uh, this is – I mean, it's a very complex topic, but it's also a product of uh, the modern era where – our scientific bent that we've been on for, you know, the last 300 years has caused people to look very deeply into very narrow topics. Mm-hmm. And, you, and this has played out in society through, like in the medical profession, you can see you've got specialist doctors now that actually know next to nothing about certain parts of the body, but they'll have massively deep specialist knowledge about one particular system in the body, right? Yeah. And this applies across the board and even to our climate scientists. So our climate scientists have looked very specifically at what they think is connected to climate dynamics. But there are things outside of the climate science field which are really, really important which are just not looked at, like, for example, space weather and, and solar activity. You know, it's not normally something that a climate scientist would look at. But in fact, it's probably the major driver of our climate. Well, that's what we're. That's what our climate is in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We're in a universe. <laughs> totally. And so the the reason that I'm thinking that there's a long term cooling trend happening hmm. at the moment is uh, I'm looking at evidence from a number of different sources, and most of them are outside the climate science field, like astrophysicists, for example, who are looking at um, solar dynamics, the things, what's happening on the sun how the sun's activity as it goes through these sort of roughly 11-year solar cycles uh, changes the the solar wind which blows over the planet and when the solar wind is strong it protects us from the impact of cosmic radiation Mm. and as the wind dies back when the the sun is going into solar minima uh, we get bombarded by a lot more cosmic radiation than we normally do and we're actually we're just about to reach solar minima probably next year now on the current cycle. Yeah, wow. Uh, And there's good evidence. uh, There's a study which was done by a Danish guy. Um, I guess it was probably, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago now that he did this research but uh, he found that as cosmic radiation increases cloud cover increases on the planet because the, the little ionised particles which are flying in from space, they they seed, they create seeds for water droplets to form uh, and create clouds. So That kind of makes sense, I suppose, because it's more protection. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, during these periods of solar minima where there's higher cosmic radiation, the planet generally cools down, not just because the sun's quiet but also because there is more cloud forming around the planet hmm. to cool cool us down yeah so so would you say that it's it's become a bit like we've lost a bit of nuance in this conversation because it's gone it's been polarized a little bit you've got climate change supporters climate change deniers and if you're a climate denier you're an idiot and you don't love the planet and then climate change is all about helping the planet out because you strike me as a person that really cares about the environment i do do. (laughs) so like i wouldn't look at you and be like oh he's a climate denier he wants to get more oil out of the earth. Like I don't get that impression from you at no, all. No, no. It's, it's a complex situation. Uh, you know, part of it is the result of the modern scientific industrial era and this narrow specialisation of mm. professions. 
But part of it is also uh, due to the way that human consciousness is changing. And mm. so we're actually in the middle of, according to, to my uh, assessment, a shift in human consciousness right now that's taking us beyond the modern era, beyond that scientific industrial kind of thinking to a more humanistic, network-centric kind of mm. being human, right? Yeah, I really wanted to ask you about this because that was a in super interesting talk that you gave. But one question that I wanted to get out of the way first before I even let you get on a roll mm. was – where is this research come from? Because most people, you know, like when you hear, um, oh, our consciousness is shifting again, you start going, oh, God, here's a bearded hippie trying to yeah, tell me sure. some weird shit again. Yeah, yeah. Um, and a lot of people are just not introduced to this idea at all. Um, I've heard about it over the past few years in passing, and a, a lot of it actually from psychedelic pe people in the psychedelic world. I read this great book called Bre Breaking Open the Head. Have you ever heard, yeah, I've read, read that? that. Yeah, Daniel yeah. Pinchbeck. Yeah. And it's a great book. He does this re really incredible journalistic work, and then he kind of goes off the rails, <laughs> totally off the rails after that. And then it, it, it's sad because it's like it takes away how good of work he did with Breaking Open the Head, yeah. you know, because his... his yeah. You know, I, I, it's boundary-pushing stuff, and I think whenever we're pushing the boundaries of our knowledge, you know, we'll get to the point where we've put all this information together and come up with something useful, but then the further we push the boundaries, the more we, you know, get loose and, and yeah. don't, don't have any structure, you know? <laughs> it can get yeah. lost. Yeah. So you you cite a bunch of references in your talk of, of people that are saying this, but so when you said that we're entering this new phase, we're entering this yeah. new shift, where what's the evidence to support that? Like where are you getting that information from? I guess the core evidence comes from some research by an American professor of psychology called uh, Dr. Claire W. Graves, and he was around... Um, in the 1950s and 60s as a professor teaching psychology in uh, upstate New York. Okay, cool. Uh, and he was a contemporary of Abraham Maslow, who's quite a well-known mm, psychologist, mm -hmm, of, course. of course, and his hierarchy of human needs, you know, is well-known. Uh, but Graves used to um, teach at that time about five different theories of human psychology, uh, which all had different angles on, you know, how, how do our minds work, you know. And... Inevitably, at the end of a course, one of his students would kind of stick up their hand and say, Dr. Graves, you've taught us these five different theories. Which one's right? You know? <laughs> yeah. and, and he had trouble with that. He couldn't answer it. So he decided to do his own research. And his research was, was very interesting in that he didn't start with a hypothesis and then try and prove it, right? So he didn't have a fixed idea of what the nature of, of human consciousness was. Um, he started with a, a question, you know, and the question was, what is the nature of a psychologically mature adult? Mm. Uh, so he kind of went at it with a philosophical approach. He, yeah, very much so. And, yeah. uh, and he was way ahead of his time. I think of him as like the Einstein of psychology, but he's not well known because he actually died before he published his work academically. So Damn. he spent nine years studying over a thousand people. And not just looking at their opinions on, you know, what an adult, a psychologically mature adult was like and how they behaved, but also watching their behaviour and watching how those things changed over the course of nine years mm. and gathered an amazing amount of very interesting data. And he used all sorts of different data gathering techniques, like he would get students at the university to write essays on this. He would actually watch their behaviour. In fact... Uh, it's, I think it's on record that he set up a two-way mirror uh, somewhere inside the university and stood behind it sometimes and watched people's behaviour without their knowledge, which these days probably wouldn't be ethically <laughs> accepted. Yeah. You know? 
Um, and he also did things like um, reaction time testing where he would put symbols and words and things up on a, a TV screen and then ask somebody to react in a particular way and see how long it took them to react to different things. And mm. so uh, he was a guy well ahead of his time and um, he started to write a couple of articles here and there and do some public speaking towards the, you know, the later years. He was, as I understand it, not really accepted by his peers because, you know, there was this fixed idea of human psychology um, back then. Freudian, and, Jungian. Yeah, and he was kind of... He was pushing the limits, you know. Mm. He was saying things that didn't fit with the accepted viewpoint. And so I think he came under a lot of criticism. Uh, and then eventually, uh, 1986, he passed away from a heart attack. Um, and he'd started writing a book, like which I guess was his thesis, uh, some of which has survived. Oh, yeah. Okay. And I've been able to study. But uh, because he didn't get published academically, his work is not accepted by the academic world because it hasn't been peer reviewed properly. Damn. Um, yet it's, you know, it's pure gold, I think. Can it go through that process now? Um, I'm not an academic, so I'm not probably the right mm. person to be asking that question. But uh, I, I don't think so. I think someone else would have to pick up where he left off and, yeah. and then submit it. Yeah. yeah. Huh. Um, yeah, that's so interesting. It isn't, isn't that a shame? Like it's so funny. The people that have to break the mold for new ideas are always the ones that get shit on. It's usually the case. (laughs) I think historically, if you look at the pathfinders, you know, I mean, look look at Tesla as an example. There was a guy again, way, way ahead of his time. Uh, and, uh, you know, he got canned for it basically. Mm. Yeah. Damn. It's often the case. And so what's, um, what's the theory then? Um, on this kind of shift of consciousness, um, yeah, how much time I, have we got? Really? <laughs> I, I, I know, I know. I guess uh, in simple terms, his one of his central findings was that we grow through these layers or stages of consciousness. Uh, he, he really didn't use the word consciousness. He was coming from a developmental psychology perspective. Uh, and consciousness is a very big word anyway, so mm. I, I think, it, you know, we need to qualify that. I mean, there are lots of different facets to consciousness, so... Um, let's let's stick to exactly what he was writing, and he was writing about developmental stages uh, in human, of the human psyche uh, of the human psyche. Yeah. Okay. And what he found was that there was this correlation between the complexity of our, of our life conditions and the dynamic adaptive nature of our consciousness. Mm. And whatever level of complexity existed within our life conditions, uh, our consciousness or our, our psyche would adapt to match that. To adapt to be able to solve the complexity of the problems that were being thrown at us, right? Mm, mm-hmm. And when we have that balance between our our own capacity and our the, the challenges that life is throwing at throwing at us, then then things are stable, and life is good, and we can we you know we feel like we're on top of things. Yeah. And, but inevitably, um, our life conditions trend towards greater complexity, and this seems to be a trend that's pretty consistent across the universe is that everything is slowly getting more complex uh, mm. right, from the, since the Big Bang. Do you think that that's an, a, like a, an inspiration, an exhalation, that things will get more complex and then they'll simplify again and then get more complex and simplify? Or I, are we infinitely going to complexity? Uh, look, I, I tend towards what you just described. I think it, in, in a very, very long-term sense it is a, it's a polarity you know, like an mm. inhale-exhale kind of a pattern, yeah. Mm. And a lot of other philosophers, you know, people like Ken Wilber, for example, do say that also. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's not the kind of thing that we can necessarily prove uh, in this physical universe right now. <laughs> it would take a long time. But, yeah, millions uh, But of I think years. it's quite likely because um, 
when you look at the the wisdom traditions that have been running, you know, as long as recorded history, uh, which are put together by people who who make serious inquiry into these things, um, they go by the adage "as above, so below." You know, so mm-hmm. whatever pattern you see in the bigger picture, it also applies right down to the smallest picture. Yeah, I had a, a lady on here a, a while ago who's an artist that she, works with fractals. Yeah, and it's just such a beautiful concept, but it's a hard thing to get your head around. I understand, you know, I, it took me talking to her three times or so to really start to see. Oh, I get what you mean by fractals. I mean, yeah. I had this gross experience where I did something uh, embarrassing on the podcast and then and then had to kind of take it back or whatever. And what I realized made me feel so gross about it was that um if I if some what if any random person had stumbled across my podcast and listened to that episode only and didn't know me and didn't know anything else and they just listened to that episode, I would feel uncomfortable with the way that that represented me as a person and the podcast as a whole. So that's why I didn't like it. And I was trying to understand what that meant. And what I realized was, is that each episode of this podcast is a fractal of the purpose of the podcast and the meaning of the podcast. And then that's all a fractal of a meaning of my life. Yeah, And that's a fractal of the meaning of my development or growth in terms of the human race and general consciousness and whatever the fuck we're trying to do here. You know, like what is the purpose of life? Mm. So so as silly as it seems, like each episode of the podcast or even me just sitting down to think to have a podcast, these are all little tiny fractals in the greater grand scheme of things. So if one of those little fractals is off or the wrong color or points the wrong direction, it makes me feel uncomfortable because it's not aligned overall to my general purpose. And that kind of just hit me like a stone, like, oh, that's what we mean by fractals. If each piece is in more or less alignment with a general thing that we're trying to do, things feel relatively good. You feel like you're on track and you feel like you're going well. But when you get off track, it's because those things, either you don't have this kind of general alignment to something greater than you or you don't really know where you're going. Yeah, you know, I kind of come from the angle that everything is perfect and even when things feel like they're not perfect, they actually are. It's just Mm. a matter of our perspective, right? And a fractal is simply a pattern that repeats at different scales. Mm. You know, it doesn't matter whether you look at the tiniest piece of the of the pattern, you're going to see the same uh, shape as you would if you stood back and looked at a larger aspect of the pattern. Mm. Um, so it just repeats. And, and so, you know, if you take that podcast as an example of a little kind of gnarly bit of, of the pattern, um, then it's a true representation of, of what the pattern is, you know, the pattern being you in this case, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but we have the capacity to change these patterns and that's the beauty of, of human consciousness is it's ultimately creative. Yeah. And, you know, depending on the, what kind of feedback we're aware of and our capacity to process and act on that, then if we want to change that fractal pattern, we can change it. Yeah, man. Yeah. And so this, the idea of evolution, uh, like in the simplistic terms, when you think of evolution, it's the animal's ability to adapt to their environment. But we often, the, the sentence stops there, adapt to the environment, full stop. But nobody's really wondering how the environment is changing and then how the species is adapting to it. Because it's not that it's how the um, the species adapts to that immediate environment. If that environment is constantly changing, which as we well know it is, because we're only bits of the environment, we are the environment. Mm. So our influence on the environment and vice versa is going to be changing us in a symbiotic way. Not yes. it, We're not exclusive to that. It's not that I need to adapt to this environment I'm in. It's like 
whatever I'm doing is going to have a feedback loop. Yeah, that's true. And, and one of the aspects of Claire Graves' um, theory that he came up with was that we grow through these layers or stages, right? And they're not discrete uh, items. They're actually nested inside each other, just like the sort of skin is layered on an onion. Yeah, yeah. yeah okay. so, it, so the lower uh, stages or layers uh, are wrapped by, you know, each higher layer or stage that emerges wraps around what's already there so it becomes a composite of, of the whole um, the whole piece and so each one of these layers or stages comes with a certain perspective mm. and as we grow to to higher layers or stages our perspective gets bigger and bigger and bigger with each different step up right mm. and so um, you know, whoever came up with that idea about us being organisms that are evolving in, in an environment, was looking at it from a particular perspective or at mm. a particular scale and the further up you go, the, the broader your perspective becomes, then you might start to see the environment and the organism as one thing. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, it's a beautiful idea and, and it, it makes a lot, uh, a lot of sense. So you've got this kind of – I wonder about this perspective because it happens in me as your life moves on, you can kind of look back at moments because when you're, say, one to six years old – your perspective of the experience of life is only six years old. Yeah. So six minutes in a six-year lifespan is massive compared to six minutes in a 30-year lifespan yeah. or six minutes in a 90-year lifespan. So percentage-wise, you know, each significant moment to you becomes less significant as you have experienced more moments yeah. or whatever. And so that kind of makes sense. Like the more recorded history we can reflect on and look back for, we can we can develop perspectives all around that as we get further and further away from those moments. Yeah. Interestingly, though, the way that we process those perspectives changes. Mm. So it's not, again, it's not a linear uh, pattern. So Mm. in the earlier uh, stages of our life, we're primarily living according to our urges and instincts and emotions, okay? So that's our primary information input system. And it's how we respond is through those those same things. And this is your your monkey brain, is it, or is uh, it the, it, it the would, reptilian yeah, brain? Isn't it? it? Well, it's it's ultimately like at the at the lowest level, it's the reptilian brain. But where as humans, we're born with a brain that you know also has an emotional system in it as well. Mm. Um, and uh, I, I guess in the very early stages, as a newborn, we would be primarily just living from instinct, right? Mm. We're not we're not really thinking about how we feel about something. We just cry if we're hungry. We sleep if we're tired. That, mm. that kind of stuff. And then as we grow and, and our brains develop, we do develop this capacity for emotion. Uh, and in what's what I call the pre-rational zone of our growth, which is the first three layers in Graves' model, um, we're driven by by those things, basically our urges, instincts, our needs, emotion, emotions and responses, yeah. Um, so <clears throat> that's why with a, a young child, if you if ask them to reason, they generally can't reason at an early age you know you can't say to them okay here's a chocolate i'm going to put it on the table here but don't eat it now because then you won't be hungry when it's dinner time but what's a kid going to do you know most mm-hmm. kids are just going to eat the chocolate because mm-hmm. they can't think about that cause and effect process that's a rational minded uh, activity and the rational mind kicks in later on in life and did the the rational mind also evolved later inside our heads um well yeah it did i mean if one of the things about graves's model which is amazing is it's like a fractal pattern right that's so, what i was just thinking yeah, yeah so wow. you can look at your growth 
uh, to your present age. And then you can also look at the evolution of humanity and see the same patterns playing out. So <laughs> in our early stages when we were hunter-gatherers, when we were traditional tribal people and then moving into being warlike people, like Genghis Khan type folks who just, you know, um, travelled the land conquering other people. Uh, we were primarily the driven British by... people. <laughs> <laughs> we were primarily driven by those basic things, by our basic needs, our urges and instincts. And if we wanted to do something, then we'd do it now, right? Yeah. Um, and it was only really with the agricultural revolution around that time, roughly 10, 12,000 years ago, where we figured out how to farm on a large scale that allowed us to live in larger groups than we could before. Um, so we started to get towns and cities and that increased the complexity. So there's, there's our life conditions increasing in complexity, throwing up more complex problems and that was one of the, the things which, uh, you know, whether I mean, Graves' theory is that the complexity drives our development. So if, if he's right, then it was that increasing complexity that caused our rational mind to kick in and take charge. Okay. Uh, and that really gave us the capacity to think about cause and effect and to rationalise things and rationalise our fears away, for example. You mm-hmm. know? Uh, so when we're in that pre-rational zone, our fears are, are quite powerful. Yeah, um, they guided everything. Like I see a tiger run. They could. They could, yeah. yeah. And so it takes the rational mind to step in and say, okay, now I know this feels scary, but actually it's not. So huh. just put that fear back in the box and let's go ahead and do it, right? And there was a quite a big jump in brain development around that time, wasn't it? Like we and nobody, no evolutionary biologist really has come up with yet with a provable theory as to why our brain doubled in size or was it tripled in size at that point in time? I, I'm really I'm not on top of the, the brain size development, so I, I can't comment on that. But what I can say is that around that same time that we're talking about here, around the agricultural um, revolution, um, and the kicking in of the the rational mind is dominant, that coincided with the development of the frontal lobes of the brain, which are uh, sort of pivotal in this rational process. Yeah, okay. Yeah, of moderating the, the lower. I mean, it, it does absolutely make sense. Now that we understand what we know about neuroplasticity, I talked about this a little bit on a couple podcasts ago, but the, it's the idea generally that your brain can rewrite itself with new information. Yeah. We, we, yeah. When we get new experiences, we have to deal with them some way, and through repetitive exposure to this thing, we will exactly. create new brain channels for it. So it's so interesting. We're yeah. literally growing our brain to deal with a problem. That's right. And, and wow. although, you know, in Graves' time, this, this term, neuroplasticity didn't exist but basically he was writing about that same process is where wow. we are ultimately adaptive yeah yeah um because there's what is it it's the stoned ape theory is the idea that um as we we moved out of the trees and into the plains we were and became more agricultural we were following cows around or had having cows nearby us more often yeah. and psychedelic mushrooms grow in cow shit so the hunter-gatherers were starting to eat mushrooms and that's what developed language. This, I think that's Terence McKenney's that's, theory, That's Terence's <laughs> uh, idea, yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, who knows whether that's true or not. I mean, there's another idea which is pretty radical that we had um, intervention by extraterrestrial I've heard that races, too, yeah. You know, which impacted our evolution also, <laughs> yeah. yeah. What's that theory? Well, um, uh, it, I guess it depends who you, you listen to, but uh, one theory is that extraterrestrials visited the planet, interbred with our predecessors, uh, wow. thereby creating you know a new uh, type of DNA that was 
part our predecessors and part extraterrestrial. Uh, and there's actually there's some scientific evidence which seems to fit in in line with that idea. <laughs> That's so um, mental. I mean, I think probably most people have heard about this idea of the missing link in our evolutionary yeah. progression, and the fact that our predecessors have got 24 chromosome pairs and we only have 23. Uh, and one of our genes, uh, I think it's um, number two, if I'm if I'm right, but I'm I'm not a scientist with this stuff, so. Um, I'm drawing on other people's work, but one of our genes has an unusual structure in, in that the, the strand which makes them up is normally ended like it has a, like a, a cap on the top and the bottom of the strand, uh, which is something called a telomere. Mm-hmm. And all of our genes have this structure except for one, which has two telomeres right in the middle of the strand as if two different strands have been fused together. Wow. Yeah, and no science has really explained why that is the case. So I, I personally lean towards this theory that uh, there was come some kind of extraterrestrial intervention and interbreeding that, wow. that shaped who we are today. And uh, and that's what, 10,000 years ago? No, it was much older than that. Well, That's um, agriculture the, was 10,000, right? Yeah, the, the best description that I've heard is that the initial intervention happened about 200,000 years ago, which was when modern humans first appeared. Okay. Uh, and But that there was on some ongoing interaction and particularly around the explosion of culture, which happened about 50,000 years ago, which okay. is what Terence talks about, possibly being related to psychedelic use. Yeah. Was, you know, for 150,000 years ago, uh, we were hunter-gatherers and we made very simple tools out of stone and, and didn't do much more. But about 50,000 years ago, there was this sudden explosion of art and culture and we started living together in tribes and you know there's no clear indication of what might have triggered that yeah okay yeah. <laughs> that's so interesting man that's mad it is very interesting what is that gene responsible for i'm i'm not sure uh, I, I, that'd be interesting yeah. to know like what yeah. what does it actually do in us yeah and how much of an impact it would have? I fucking imagine but that if um, we're all half alien. If uh, if yeah, if anybody wants to follow it up, Greg Braden, who's uh, an American uh, author and speaker, uh, talks about that. So you can look at Greg Braden's work. Yeah, okay. Uh, I think in his latest book, he's talking about that. And also, and this this is a bit left field, but there's a, a guy called Lee Carroll from the US uh, who channels uh, like a medium. You know what you know what that oh, is? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Like has some, some disincarnate. Uh, personality speaking through him wow um he has been doing that and and lee carroll's an engineer he's not some you know new age guy um he's been doing that and delivering these messages from an entity called kryon k-r-y-o-n for i think nearly 30 years now what? And he, he actually has an amazing record of predicting scientific breakthroughs where, where <laughs> oh he's been sitting and allowing this voice to speak through him and, and the voice has said, you know, there's this scientific breakthrough coming and it's about this, watch out for it. And and he's got a solid record with that. So, you know, what's going on there? Something I think it's worth paying attention to. <laughs> wow, that's so mad. <laughs> I, actually, I actually just went down to Hobart in the last two weeks uh, and went to visit Lee Carroll uh, at an event down there and listened to him doing this for the first time. It's the first time I've ever seen him do it face to face, yeah. 
I, 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 I've watched people do that before. I've seen it on um, a podcast, and I've, I used to watch the videos of, I think her name is Dolores Cannon. Yeah, right. She does a thing like that. Yeah, so yeah. It's pretty funny. It is pretty mental. It's, I mean, who the fuck knows what the hell's going on there? I, I mean, who are we to judge? You know? I, I know. It's mad. Yeah. It's definitely mental, but it's mental yeah. only for our perspective because it's like, what the fuck is that? I, I know. Like, I, I come from a pretty grounded background. You know, I was in the Army for 15 years, mm. um, and I, I try to take a very, very grounded approach to these things. Um, but I've had a lot of experiences in my life where strange stuff happens, you know, mm. um, and sometimes through the use of psychedelics. And, uh, you know, I, I think you've just got to take things on face value. And if, if something is presented to you in a way that you really can't deny, then it only roll with makes, it for now. Yeah, roll with it. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, something interesting that's just come to mind about that is that, you know, so you were saying that he's predicted sort of technological um, inventions and then they come about. Yeah. You know, we were talking just before about the idea that our brain adapts to the environment that's around us and vice versa. This is a feedback loop. Yes. How much of that stuff, when he, just somebody having an idea and putting it out there in the world, how much of that is possible for manifesting that idea and then bringing it back? And I don't mean like, I'm going to win the lottery and then you try and manifest that in your life. I mean, literally like thinking about something and saying it out loud. I think we're going to have a technological advancement in this thing. Yeah. How much did that start triggering people to start looking into it and then they make it happen? Well, of course it would. I mean, Mm. you know, as soon as somebody starts talking about something new and it's, it's a popular idea and it goes viral, clearly it's going to you're going to have a whole bunch of other people thinking about it right yeah that so just yeah. makes sense and there have been uh, instances of this particularly around ath- um, athletic achievements over mm. the years where somebody's broken a record and then within quick succession uh, a whole bunch of other people will break the same record. It's like it's like somebody's laid down a pathway, you know, that yes. takes us beyond the boundary and then all of a sudden it becomes accessible to other people. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we've seen that a lot with them. Um, I used to do um, like slope-style skiing and yep. snowboarding and it's like as soon as one person lands a 1440, then all of a sudden everybody can do a 1440. It's totally. almost like you have to know that it's some person tells you it's possible and yeah. then everybody's like, oh, fuck, yeah, it, maybe yeah. I can, can do that. Yeah, I, you know, I, when I was in the Army, I, I remember – on at least one occasion, somebody doing something that was just like out of the ordinary, amazing, you know, yeah. and, and often it was some young um, soldier or officer and somebody would say, wait, you can't do that. And then someone else would say, yeah, but nobody told him. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> he didn't know. No one told me he couldn't do that. Yeah, now yeah, he can. Yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, and then that, isn't that cool? Because it's like um, in just by you taking the chance and trying something new, you're providing a step for everyone else to jump up with you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and sometimes, you know, if we listen to other people too much, we can convince ourselves that something isn't possible, you yeah. know, which actually means well, we can't do it because we don't believe we can do it. Yeah. yeah. And, and this is, the I think, of one of the major dangers of people oh excellent we've got a garbage truck here hey. that'll be real obnoxious um but yeah like that uh the idea that we can make the change by just pushing ourselves out there forward then we're bringing it then we bring whatever that is out into being yeah. and the by not questioning science and accepting that science is a fact and this is it and i and i appreciate it i'm not a person that's gonna sit here and say that doctors don't know what they're talking about or whatever i mean i think that's insane there's a lot of history and time and effort that's been into creating the models of the universe and we way we know them but it doesn't mean that they're immutable it doesn't mean that they can't be 
questioned and looked at and retried in new ways as we get better technology, whatever. Yeah. And it has to be done that way because this is the real danger. Is that like you're um, so Claire Graves is talking about this evolution of the species, but if we stop questioning and we allow these rigid structures to stop us from wondering if we can get to that next level, maybe that next level doesn't exist. Maybe we kill ourselves before it even happens. Maybe we just calcify, you know, like a crustacean. We just build up these shells of protection around us because it's too scary to take that leap. Yeah, and yeah, I'm sure there have been many cases of that kind of thing happening, you know, whether it be in individual lives. I mean, we've seen it. We've all seen it. Mm. You've seen somebody who's just become terribly fearful and rigid about their attitude to life, they lock themselves down, they don't interact, you know, and, and, and eventually they die that way mm. you know, in a closed state. And uh, Graves, in his research, he wrote that people can be open, uh, arrested or closed in terms of their capacity to adapt, to, okay. to, to take in information from the environment and then adapt to, to the challenges, you know, that they're being faced with. Yeah. Um, and if, if we're open, it's like an open system where information can flow into and out of the system and the system can respond, react, adapt to new information, right? Mm -hmm. um, simple things like you walk out in the sun, you feel your skin getting burnt, you, you know, you put a shirt and a hat on or, or something like that. I mean, that's an example of you being an open system, you're uh, receiving information, you're taking note of it, you're adapting, you know, yeah. in, in a responsible or, or a sensible way. Um, and sometimes people can get psychologically into a state where they just close their minds. They no longer listen to new information. And one of the ways you can identify these sorts of people is they tend to try and use the same solutions to a problem even when the problem has changed, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it's the old sort of thing of, of thinking everything's a nail so you hit it with a hammer. Yeah. You know, but but so, then you come across a screw and you hit it with a hammer and it's not quite the same. Yeah, it doesn't quite do So it. that's what happens when we get closed is, is we start yeah. to do things that are inappropriate and those things become less and less effective. Mm. And we're actually seeing this large scale right now around the planet because we're in this shift that I've been talking about beyond the modern scientific industrial era to what's next. Mm. And we're seeing all of the systems that were designed during the scientific industrial era uh, become less effective, you know, mm. like our economic systems, our political systems. You know, people are trying the same old solutions that we've used for the last 300 years, but the world has changed. Mm. The world is different than it was when those systems were designed. So they don't work anymore. Mm. Yeah, it's like letting go of a monarchy. Like, yeah. you know, we all were once ruled by kings and queens and rulers and dictators or whatever, and then we slowly realized that that probably wasn't the best way to go it. But yeah. it is funny because I thought about this once when somebody was asking me when Donald Trump was running for president, they were like, what would you do if he actually won? And mm. I was like, I as bad and nihilistic as it is, like I couldn't give a fuck one way or the other because the one model is that we have this pretend human that stands there and says things off of a script in a really rigid suit and they just say a bunch of bullshit that they think the people want to hear behind the scenes they're run by a bunch of money they don't give a fuck about people they're just all they're doing is creating a bigger and bigger gap between yep. the people that are struggling and and we just run this government system that is a quote-unquote government system that's not here to help the people and it never has been and we always have to have these civil rights uprising to fucking slap them in the face every once in a while and be like you we hired you we hired you to do a job for us and you don't give a shit. And what's so frustrating about it is that 
you know, the Barack Obamas, the Hillary Clintons, the Bill Clintons, they're sitting there looking at you going like, no, we're here to help you. And you're mm-hmm. like, bitch, yeah. you're not. Yeah. You never have been. Yeah. You're doing, you're dropping drones with our money constantly on people that we have nothing against. And yet you sell, you're telling me that you're steering this ship. You're taking care of this ship for me. And you're not. And so on that's one hand. And so Hillary Clinton gets hired. Yep, it's the same old bullshit. We're going to keep going on the same old road. And I think that it was her downfall. Is Instead of her adapting to the new situation, she and the Democratic Party were like, no, we're sticking clear. We're, what they should have done was gone with Bernie Sanders and just realize that, yeah, he's a bit out there. I mean, slightly out there compared to everybody else, but I mean, only slightly, just because he had new ideas. He was adapting. Yeah. And then, so then the other option is this fucking wacko who doesn't give a fuck about anything. He doesn't care about the institution of it because he thinks he's untouchable. And he's a maniac. He's just an absolute pure maniac. But what I think it did, and I think the benefit of it is, if we can learn anything from this, is not, oh, we need to get out and vote. It is, Oh, we've shown the ludicrous nature of the situation of president, that this is absolutely insanely ludicrous, that we would trust this one human, whether they're Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, that we would trust one of them to make decisions on our behalf is fucking bullshit at this point. Yeah, and I think that's Trump's role, you know, in the bigger picture is he's there to make change. That's why he's appeared. He's kind of like the court jester, you know. Yes, back, yes, yeah. Back, back I in hear the you. days of like kings and queens, you know, um, no one would want to offend the king or the queen. Mm-hmm. So often they didn't get told the truth, and it was the court jester was always the one who could, through humor, actually reveal the truth, you know, and say something that was real. Yeah. Um, so that was like a like a, a trip switch, you know, to release the tension and get the truth flowing. And, and Trump is like that. He's playing that role. Um, but he, he's not saying the truth necessarily. I, I I would hold the truth to a higher standard than well, him. You know, Trump, I care about the truth. The thing about Trump is, you know, I guess some people might say that he's not very smart, but what smart president would collapse the existing system so a better system can be built? No smart president was going to do that. Yeah, that's you a good a, point. You need yeah. a guy who's, who's like the fool from the tarot card deck, that yeah. character who naively stumbles in and accidentally does the right thing. You yeah, know? yeah. And, and that's that's Trump all over. Like yeah. um, I'm not saying that everything he's doing is right, but ultimately what he's doing is he's collapsing the old system. Yeah. And, and at a time when evolution is calling us to change our systems and move to something that's better, mm. you know, more effective, that, that meets the modern challenges that we're facing. Absolutely, man. Yeah. yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. And it's it is gross. It's it's hard to um, it's hard to watch. And it, and and it as with anything, you know, like I, you have your own kind of mental earthquakes every once in a while. It fucking hurts. You got to yeah. get slapped in the face and realize you're a dick sometimes, and sometimes. it's not good. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like, well, now how can I change from this? And this is what's worrying me a little bit is the polarity that's developing out of it. It's like you're going to turn. You know, is that everyone's latching on to really um, simplified versions of right and wrong yeah. suddenly. Because yeah. I think this tends to happen, it seems like, when there's a lot of change going on, That's you right. sort of cling on to things that seem like, no, this is right. If you're left wing, I'm right wing. That's it. That's yeah. all there is. I'm a man, you're a woman. You know, and it was like, yeah. it's like, hold on, we're listen- we're mo- we are losing an opportunity to learn a lesson here where we are not just one of these things we've what we need to see now is nuance yeah and this you know that dynamic you just explained uh, is documented in claire graves's work so he found that Mm. when we go through change from one of these paradigms or layers or stages to the next you know it, it actually it shifts our fundamental 
interaction with reality, like the, the most, wow. the, the deepest subconscious ways that we make sense of reality change, okay? Mm. And to go through that change, what has to happen is things have to fall apart. You know, you can't, I mean, if you think of like a, a kid's a Lego block toy, you know, if it's a ship, you can't snap your fingers and change it into an airplane. You've got to pull the blocks apart, mm. put it back together in a different way. So that has to happen to us as individuals. You know, our psyche has to has to loosen up and become mm. plastic enough to change radically. And our society needs to do the same thing. Our social systems need to change. So they need to some extent to fail to the point where we say, okay, we have to rebuild this in a different way. Mm. And, uh, and so what happens personally for us when we start to go through this change process, we feel like something's not right. You know, we wake up one morning and we go... You know, something doesn't feel right today. Mm. I was really happy and everything was good yesterday, but today it's different. And we usually don't know what the cause is, but we just know that we feel different. Mm. And as that sort of tension starts to build, we start to think, okay, things aren't right. Uh, I I can't keep living life the way that I have been. I've got to change. So maybe I'll think back to like 10 years ago. When I when things were different and I was living life a different way, yeah. right? And let's let, if I go back to that, maybe things will be cool again, like they used to be, right? <laughs> yeah. So, and then you hear this language in the politicians' uh, speeches of you know we've got to get back to basics, we've got to get you know down to brass tacks, make Let, America great let's again, let's get back to our original values, <laughs> make America great again, you know. And and this is that natural human response is things aren't right, let's go back to the way they were. Okay? Yeah, yeah. So, I call this the slingshot effect. Mm. Because what it does is, is it actually creates more tension. When we go back to an older way of doing things, it's less complex. It's even less capable of dealing with these more complex challenges that are getting thrown up with us uh, to us. Mm. And so it's like pulling back on an elastic band on a slingshot, okay? You've got to create that tension. You've got to pull it backwards and create more and more and more tension until it gets to the point where it can shoot you forward fast enough to get where you need to go, yeah? Wow. And that's what we're seeing globally at the moment. That's why things look like they're going backwards because they are. That that, uh, elastic band is being pulled backwards. The tension is building and building and building and it's going to get to the point where, and this will probably happen multiple times, where, you know, the tension will be too much and it will release and there will be some big change happen. Mm. Uh, and, and we're going to see that happen over and over again in different aspects of, of society and within ourselves as well. Mm. Yeah. What do you think it is in some people that have this resistance to change that are seem to be, or, sorry, seem to be more resistant to change than some others? Like some people can kind of adapt to that feeling a little bit quicker than other people. Or... Yeah. It really depends on their starting point. So... Uh, in Graves' work, he mapped out eight different layers or stages of consciousness that we can grow through. And he, he didn't think that was the full story. He actually decided that this is actually an open-ended system. You know, there's going to mm. be more than eight. And as the world gets more complex, there'll be new, more complex layers added to our, our capacity. Uh, and it depends on where an individual is at in that spectrum oh, okay. uh, in terms of how they will respond to change. Because I think there's a there's this common sort of feeling globally that humanity has evolved to a certain point, everybody's at that point, and we're all moving to the same place, you know, whatever that next place might be. But in fact, Graves' work didn't show that at all. He showed that there's actually a spectrum depending on the complexity of someone's life conditions, like say if they live in a country town, they don't have technology – uh, life's pretty simple, you know, they can keep doing the same thing over and over again and it works. Mm. Uh, their mindset, their perspective on the world is going to be 
adapted in a certain way, that means they won't cope with change very well because they don't normally get change much, right? Mm. Whereas if someone's living in an intense environment where they're living in close proximity to a whole bunch of other people, you know, let's say New York City, um, where things are changing all the time, like every day you've got to be ready to adapt to some new thing that you might encounter in, in your day-to-day life, then your your consciousness is going to adapt to be, to be responsive, you know, and to expect change. Mm. And so depending on what your starting point is on this spectrum, your response to change is going to be different. Mm. And you might, you know, if you're not used to change, then you might just kind of deny it for a while and say, oh, no, that's okay, I'm fine, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like that cartoon of the dog sitting in the bar that's burning, you know, saying, <laughs> I'm fine, everything's good. Everything's all good. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's only when your ass starts to burn, they actually move and do something. Yeah, <laughs> you're forced to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and is there ways that you um, that people can change that in themselves, you know, like if they're having a really hard time dealing with change, are there things that they can do to... Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's one of my primary interests is looking at different methodologies and technologies for accelerating change because mm. uh, I think we're going to need them, you know, in the mm-hmm. times ahead. Uh, and there's a lot of good research, for example, there's research into uh, contemplative states like meditation and how they can actually accelerate your personal change over time. Mm. Um, so, so regular meditators tend to be more adaptive. Why is that? I wonder because you were saying before that if you are, you know, around by uh, surrounded by people and a lot of stuff going on, it makes you more adapted to change. But if you isolate yourself and be quiet and spend your time on yourself, you are also more adapted to change. Why is that? Yeah, I I think what it comes down to is uh, this idea of altered states, right? Mm. So if you think of being in one of these layers of consciousness as having a certain construct a certain expectation of reality being the way that it is mm. uh, and, uh, you know, whether you're sort of closed or open uh, is also going to play a part here, your own personal kind of state there. Um, then if you practice regularly uh, collapsing that structure, okay, then you'll become nimble. It's like a, an athlete who trains right mm-hmm. the more you train the more nimble you can become doing any particular thing so if you have a regular practice that changes your state of consciousness into something different and then brings you back again then it's like exercising a muscle mm. and so uh, um, all of the methodologies and technologies that i'm finding that are useful for accelerating our own development seem to be in, involving some kind of altered state you know okay. and it's not always drugs you know it can be meditation it can be exercise it can be um, food induced you know all sorts of different things Mm. yeah um and so i I mean i guess if we touch on psychedelics a little bit because you're obviously not recommending that everyone just goes and eats a tab of acid and don't try this at home (laughs) what kind of um transformative states are you finding through drugs uh, and and pro- mostly because you've been looking into MDMA assisted psychotherapy stuff. Yeah, so I'm I'm co-founder of a non-profit organisation here in Australia called Psychedelic Research in Science and Medicine, uh, which was really you know the initiation of, of that organisation was um, in large part due to Rick Doblin, who's the founder oh, yeah. of MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies in the US. Um, so some folks here in Australia. <clears throat> who started a, like a community interest group in Melbourne, I think it was back in about 2003, thereabouts, who were mainly a bunch of people interested in, in psychoactive plants to start with that used mm. to just come together and, and swap plants and talk about, you know, using them, that kind of thing. 
Um, and that grew into what is now an organisation called Entheogenesis Australis, or EGA for short. And EGA have been running uh, psychedelic symposiums for years now and they've become world class. They're, they're wow. really, really good. And so some of the people from EGA travelled overseas uh, and met with Rick Doblin and you know spoke about what's happening in the US and how we might be able to do something similar here. They invited Rick to come speak at the 2010 uh, psychedelic symposium that EGA put on in Melbourne. And um, I actually saw a media report about the fact that Rick was coming and uh, it mentioned the MDMA research, uh, which was looking at using it to treat PTSD. Uh, and I, I was in Byron Bay at the time and I decided to travel down to Melbourne and go to that uh, mm. psychedelic symposium and it was really, really good. And while Rick was talking, he offered some money to help us start a research organisation here in Australia. So that's how PRISM got started. Right. Uh, and uh, I was one of the people who volunteered to help. We yeah. did that process. So we formal we formalised it in 2011. Uh, we very quickly tried to kind of jump in the pool and swim, um, <laughs> and in, which in hindsight was, you know, I, I guess uh, commendable but somewhat naive of us because none of us had any experience in drug development or the process that you need to go through to get a, a new drug approved. Yeah. Um, we jumped in the pool and found out that we couldn't swim all that well and um, <laughs> then we kind of pulled back a bit and, and started a longer journey of um, of trying to get some psychedelic research happening here in Australia. And it's been a long road um, because there's been a lot of pushback from institutions here, you know, this and, and really I think it's partly a, a generational thing but it's about the particular mindsets that are that are normal here in Australia. And, mm. and again, it's, it's all tied into Claire Graves's, you know, different layers of consciousness. This idea that has been pushed really strongly since the war on drugs was declared in the US, that drugs are bad and everything is is clumped under this word drugs. You know, it's it doesn't matter so if you're talking about cocaine or heroin or MDMA, it's drugs, right? Yeah. Yet they're radically different substances that, that have radically different effects. Um, and so we've been knocking on doors and saying, you know, we want to do this research. Can you support us? And we've been, it's just been getting, nope, 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 we can't do that. No, well, we couldn't be seen to be doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, imagine the public image. And a lot of the institutions that we approached were worried about their funding base. Like if they're seen to be publicly supporting drugs, you know, mm-hmm. they, they might have their funding withdrawn and that kind of thing. So it's been uh, a matter of some very real fears Uh and it's only since late last year, so late 2017, that some doors have really started to open for us. Cool. And we had, in quick succession, we had, uh, it's like someone flicked a switch somewhere, you know, people coming to us offering us money to help what we're doing. Uh, we had uh, a university actually step up and say, okay, we're interested in this. We had a hospital, Rad. had a hospital approach us, a major hospital. Uh, saying, we think we'd like to research this. Can you work with us? And it's mostly um, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy trials for PTSD. Uh, It's that and also uh, we are working in the area of uh, psilocybin-assisted therapy uh, to treat near-death anxiety. There's been some really good research done in the US around that with Mm -hmm. terminally ill patients and basically giving them a spiritual experience using psilocybin which opens them up to the to the possibility that death is not the end, but it's just a new beginning. Mm. Right? Yeah. There's many things that I wanted to say about that that I'm really curious about. First of all, I'm so grateful that you guys didn't give up when you jumped into the pool and then you failed. Yeah. Because I think that's 
I, I mean, that's such a commendable act because it is fucking scary. And there's a lot of stigma around it. I mean, when I start talking about drugs to people, you know, straight away, everybody's just like, you fucking idiot. You don't know what you're talking about. And I get it. Yeah, sometimes I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. But um, the amount of research, and this is kind of what I wanted to ask, was if you could give us some background on the actual benefits that they've been finding from PTSD, like why is this an important thing to pursue? Why was it worth pursuing? Uh, I, if you go back and look at the history of MDMA, um, you know, it was developed, I, I think it was around like 1913, 1914 by Merck, the pharmaceutical company, and it was put on the shelf. Um, and then the, the US military looked at it, I think, in the 1950s, uh, you know, as maybe a, a truth serum or something like that. Yeah, that's uh, right. But it didn't go anywhere. And then it was um, a US chemist by the name of Alexander Shulgin, Sasha Shulgin as he was known. I have his book. I've yeah. got PCAL. Yeah, yeah it's cool. A great book. cool. Yeah, so he pulled it off the shelf and checked it out and found it that was amazing and then he started to give it out to friends of his who were working as counselors and psychologists uh, for use in therapy work. They got really, really good results from it uh, but then eventually it escaped into the recreational drug world. Uh, I think it was a guy from Texas who started mass-producing pills and then sort of giving them out for free at nightclubs and that kind of thing. Mm. It all got out of control and then eventually the government cracked down and I think it was made illegal in the US in 1985. Uh, and, and so Rick Doblin then was a, was a young, uh, you know, counterculture guy, uh, draft dodger who'd stumbled on, you know, MDMA before it was made illegal and found it amazing and decided he wanted to be an MDMA therapist and then mm. the government made it illegal, you know. Uh, <laughs> And um, so he started pretty much straight away, he started MAPS and he mm. started on this mission just to overcome the legal restrictions and, and get this made, a, a, you know, a legal medicine. Because the kind of stuff that they were finding, I mean, their, their, their very first trial, I don't remember the exact statistics, you might be able to help clarify for me, but their first trial of PTSD, p- treating people with MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, and for everybody who doesn't know how this worked, it was that they give them um, either potentially a placebo uh, and the doctor doesn't know this, the therapist doesn't know who's getting what. They give them either a placebo or they give them a medium high or low dose of MDMA. And this is your M- very pure MDMA that came from a chemist, not yeah. from the guy around the corner. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and um, they put a eye mask on them, lay them down, let them listen to music, and then just if the person wanted to talk, they could talk. These were four to eight hour sessions and they keep the person there for eight hours and let them talk through stuff. And this was people that were suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder that nothing else had worked for them. All antidepressants, every other treatment had not worked for them. And they had something, I can't remember, but it was somewhere around 80% success rate. Yeah, just over 80% in, That's the, in the first trial. Yeah, insane. It, it is amazing. And, uh, you know, the, the exact mechanism of how MDMA does this, we still don't really know. But what we can say is that when people are given MDMA in the right setting and the treatment is, um, is a series of 11 uh, therapeutic sessions plus a 12th uh, longer-term follow-up session... And during those sessions, uh, the patient works with a, a therapy pair, a male and a female, um, and it's been Michael and Annie Mithhofer have been the pioneers of this work with MAPS, and Michael's a psychiatrist and um, Annie's a registered nurse and they're a married couple um, and they're old trippers from the 60s, you know, so they know what, they know what they're doing. And um, what, what they know is that in, under the right circumstances and within this um, structured, supportive system of, you know, a whole range of sessions, 
uh, if you give somebody MDMA, then it can put them into a comfort zone. Mm. And normally somebody who has had PTSD, if they start to think about the things, the traumatic events which you know, resulted in PTSD, they immediately get anxious. They act as if the trauma is happening right now, you know, not 10, 20, 30 years ago. Mm. Uh, and what MDMA does, it allows them to think about those traumatic events but not feel as if it's happening right now, okay? Mm. So they're in this kind of comfort zone where I actually I can think about that, I can remember what happened, I can talk about it but I don't feel anxious. Mm. And that is extraordinary that somehow enables this remarkable healing process. Mm. And, and my own, as a, as a war veteran myself, uh, who's suffered from uh, PTSD and been in hospital with it, um, and who's also experienced this MDMA healing, uh, I can say that it felt to me like my, it created a kind of a, a plasticity in my central nervous system and mm. it was able to rewire itself. That's what it felt like to me. Wow. Whether that's actually what's happening scientifically, we don't formally know, but... That was my feeling. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. What was it like for you? What was your experience like? My experience wasn't typical. So, so I had uh, what they call complex PTSD, which resulted from a, a number of different occurrences over the years. Um, I was accidentally poisoned as a 15-month-old kid, so I, had a, I went into hospital and nearly died when oh, I was 15 shit. months old. Uh, then I joined the army as a young guy. I spent 15 years in the army. I went to war in Africa, in Somalia, oh. uh, and had uh, you know some traumatic experiences there. Then when I came back, I got out of the army and uh, I went flying a rescue helicopter as a pilot. And I spent five years responding to like road accidents and all sorts of oh. things. And so I got exposed to a lot of trauma there. So I had a you know compounding experiences, uh, which made it particularly hard to treat. I got. I had a breakdown in 2003, went into hospital uh, at the, the Veterans Hospital in Melbourne and went through the conventional treatment system, which really didn't fix me. Um, it, it got me to the point where I could go back to work on a, a kind of a part-time basis, but I still had um, both PTSD and depression. And what was the conventional treatment? Uh, the con conventional treatment involved at that time antidepressant drugs uh, and... One-on-one uh, -on -one therapy, which I started out like two sessions a week mm. and also I went through a three-month group therapy program where I was with five other war veterans and, mm. and we would come together as a group with different lecturers and therapists and talk about our, our traumas and, you know, get taught about how PTSD affects the body and what things that we could do to, to get around it and that kind of thing. Mm. Um, but after all that, I still had it. So, um, you know, it did, I mean, it, it allowed me to become functional to some extent again, but it didn't cure me. So, and what so kind of symptoms did you have? Like what does PTSD feel like? There's a whole range of symptoms. Usually it's accompanied by depression. So depression and PTSD are sort of regarded as two different diagnoses, but usually if you've got PTSD, you've also got depression. Um, so I had major depression or major depressive disorder, which meant that I got to the point where I was having suicidal thoughts, where I was so unhappy with the way that life was, I felt like the only way to fix it was to take and take the exit. Mm -hmm. um, and really that was the thing that triggered me to, to seek formal help. Uh, but in terms of the post-traumatic stress, it can play out in a whole bunch of different ways. I mean, it, it can result in anxiety attacks. So uh, depending on what your trauma was, you know, if something happens that reminds you of that trauma, like in my case there were war traumas that could get triggered by smells or, or ba loud bangs, you know, that, that oh, might fuck. sound like a, a rifle going off. Um, disturbed sleep, so you just can't sleep properly. 
um, you you lose interest in all of the things that you normally do, you know. Mm-hmm. So if you normally exercise, you stop exercising. If you normally play music, you stop playing music. Mm-hmm. Um, inability to concentrate. Like, and, and I got to the point where I would sit down at my desk at my computer and try and do some work and I would sit down and just think, what am I doing here? You know, I don't even know what I'm supposed to be doing. How do I do this? And it just, I just became eventually quite dysfunctional. Wow. Uh, and when I was eventually admitted to hospital, um, I really was at the point where I wasn't able to care for myself properly. So, like, I couldn't do my own basic housework or feed myself or, you know, I can remember being in hospital just after I arrived in there and trying to eat a bowl of soup and my hand was shaking so much that the soup was hardly staying on the spoon, you know. as I, Yeah. So um, it can disrupt your life in, in massive ways, massive disruption. Wow. Yeah. And so then um, how did you find out about the MDMA psychotherapy or how did you get involved with that? Um, so I, I went through the conventional treatment. I got myself back to work and uh, it was actually – the way this unfolded for me was um, my first my first sort of uh, access to psychedelic medicine was through ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. So uh, I had a friend who invited me to an ayahuasca ceremony and I didn't know what ayahuasca was. And in fact, I was totally drug naive at the time. I, I drank a lot of alcohol in the army, but that was all. I, I'd never even smoked a joint. Wow. Wow. Um, so, but I was interested, I was working at the time in uh, the area of change. So I was actually a change consultant. You know, I, I, through my experiences, I'd become so fascinated with human nature and this process of change that I'd started working in that area mm. and teaching other people about it. So I was teaching in the corporate world as an organizational development consultant where I would talk to people about the human experience of change, you know, mm. how that, how that mm-hmm. impacts us and how to, how to construct change programs effectively. Um, and a, a guy who was working in a similar area to me who'd become a good friend of mine rang me up one day and said, I've just been invited to this ayahuasca ceremony. Do you want to come? And um, so I, I had to Google it and you know, find out what it was and read about it. And then I thought, okay, this sounds interesting. And, and my primary interest at the time was that it could be a useful thing for helping people navigate change. I n- had no idea that it could have been a medicine. I didn't even know that psychedelics could be medicines back then. Yeah, wow. So, so anyway, I went and had this experience. Uh, it was amazing. It was life changing, and I found that my depression just disappeared after this experience. Wow! Um, and it didn't necessarily disappear permanently, but it was just like not there for a while. Yeah. Uh, and so I thought, my God, that's amazing. You Fuck! Know? It's like seeing a blue sky again. Yeah, after yeah, a party. yeah. And that was the first inkling I got that these things are actually medicines. You know, no oh, one, no one wow. had even mentioned that drugs could be medicines. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so. Uh, it was some years after that and after I actually got involved with uh, PRISM and tried to, to start some research here in Australia that uh, I had an opportunity to try MDMA for the first time and I'd been quite cautious about that because, you know, if you if you try and do these things through the underground, you never know what you're getting. There's mm-hmm. no guarantee that what you're getting is actually MDMA. It could have other poisonous things mixed in with it sometimes. Mm-hmm. So I, I was super cautious and I also... I was very well informed because I had access to all of the research documentation from MAPS. You know, um, map, MAPS are amazingly transparent and open. Uh, they're with, an incredible organisation. They are. Yeah. Um, and so you can go to their website and you can download their treatment protocols. You can see how much MDMA they're giving to people, what the kind of sessions are run like, you know, how many sessions are in a treatment program, that kind of mm. thing. So I had all that information uh, and and I'd actually, I think uh, by the, you know, I, yeah, I'd actually met Rick Doblin, the founder of MAPS, you know, and mm. spoken to him a few times. 
and had a lot of contact with him. So, um, and I'd also been across to the to one of their annual conferences, the Psychedelic Science Conference in 2014, 2013. I'd sat in a room with all of the MDMA researchers from around the world who were working for right. MAPS. Uh, and I'd been able to have discussions with them. So I was massively well informed. Uh, and then I had an opportunity to uh, access some pure MDMA and I decided to self-medicate following the MAPS protocol. Mm. I had a friend come and sit with me for, for safety and just to monitor me uh, and I took the MDMA and basically... Was it 75 milligrams uh, or it, is it 175? It, is that at that time about? the standard dose in the MAPS dosing protocol was 125 milligrams, wow. yeah. And so I, um, I took it and I lay back and by that time I'd been practicing my Kung Fu for I think it must have been, gosh, 14, 13, 14 years I'd been practicing Kung Fu and I do a, a, a meditative Taoist form of Kung Fu which is um, it's also a meditative practice. It's like moving meditation and it's based on the Chinese medicine energy meridian system yeah so i was very aware more aware than most people of my of the the energy flows in my body and i uh, could sense them changing so once i took wow. this mdma i felt all of my energy centers my chakras light up and i felt my heart chakra just expand amazingly like i'd never felt before and i started to feel ecstasy yeah, yeah. And I thought to myself, no wonder they call this stuff ecstasy because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it just felt amazing. Mm -hmm. And and my experience was not typical at all. So I didn't have any recall of trauma. I didn't actually think about my trauma at all during that experience. I just lay there for like four or five hours in bliss mm. um, just going, wow, 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 this is amazing. And then uh, it started to wind down. You know, I, I obviously had a talk about my experience with my friend who was there uh, looking after me and then I went to sleep and the next morning I woke up and I felt radically different. Mm. And what was different was I'd been living for so long with this background anxiety, you know, at a fairly high level to the point where it had become normal for me. Mm -hmm. And when I woke up that next morning it was gone and that was like, my God, uh, you know, I'd never – I couldn't remember a time where I'd felt so peaceful Wow. And, and, you know, such an absence of anxiety. It was radically, radically different. Uh, and so – and that was like from one session. Well, one thing that I was wondering about because it's very typical in every – any person that I know that uh, takes drugs, takes MDMA, will always have like the two-day come down after yeah. it's over. There's this big – you have this big high while you're on it and then afterward you just feel like – the world's ending. Yeah. And so I was confused about that because, you know, this is a treatment for people who are suicidal. Yes. And yeah. how do they navigate those two days of come down? And I, for you it sounded like it didn't exist. It, it didn't. I, I don't remember really having the come down on mm. that occasion and it, it doesn't always happen in a therapeutic sense. Sometimes it does. But what they do is they monitor very, very carefully a person's well-being. So, uh, you know, they have they have a number of sessions before they administer the drug. Mm -hmm. And out of the 11 therapeutic sessions, usually only two or maybe three of those sessions involve MDMA. Mm -hmm. Most of them are just like a standard counselling or psychotherapeutic session, right? And they start out just so the, the patient can get to know the therapists, can get sort of informed as to what to expect mm. when the drug sessions start. Then they'll do a drug session and... Um, 
the person will usually stay on site where they had the session overnight so they don't go home. Mm. Uh, so the next morning when they wake up, the therapists are there. They've got access to a doctor and medical care if they need it. You know, they'll be questioned as to their well-being. They have like formal uh, measurement mm. uh, surveys which they put people through, you know, and, and just to gauge whether they're feeling okay or whether they're feeling depressed or whatever. Mm. Uh, and then, of course, if a person is, you know, feeling down, then they can take action to resolve that somehow yeah. and deal with it and support the person through that. Because I've always been under the impression, oh, it's a chemical thing in your brain. Your brain gets flooded with serotonin, dopamine. Well, and it then- actually is, yeah. So, so what actually happens on a, a physical, biological level is that MDMA works in a couple of different ways. One of the things it does is we have these little storage sacs uh, called vesicles where we store spare serotonin and MDMA causes all those sacs to basically squirt all the serotonin out. So we become flooded, our system becomes flooded with serotonin, okay. uh, which means that you know our, our serotonin receptors all get filled up with serotonin uh, and also, the MDMA molecule itself bonds to a transport protein and this transport protein's normal job is to go around and pick up all the spare serotonin and put it back in the storage sacks because okay, mm. it's not needed at the time. So this, the MDMA molecule actually bonds to those transport proteins so they can't do their job. Okay, mm. So we become flooded with serotonin and when you do that, there's always this knock-on effect. So the sort of three, what are regarded as the three primary you know, neurochemical serotonin, dopamine and, and norepinephrine, which is sometimes called nor- noradrenaline. Um, if you uh, flood the serotonin system, that usually uh, causes an increase in dopamine and norepinephrine, but in that order, like the, it'll increase dopamine to a certain extent and then increase, increase norepinephrine to a lesser extent. Um, and so, you know, dopamine is the feel-good um, chemical, um, and so you get a you get a kind of a mild speedy effect from the increase in norepinephrine. You'll get a, a really lovely, a warm and fuzzy ecstasy feeling from the dopamine, and, and a general well-being from the serotonin uh, mm. flood as well. Um, and then it takes so so what happens is it disrupts the body's serotonin reuptake system because normally if we've got excess serotonin, the little proteins go around, collect them all up, put them back in the storage sacs, the vesicles, mm-hmm. and uh, restore a normal balance. So that reuptake process process gets disrupted while the, the MDMA molecules are in our system and it takes roughly sort of 44 to 48 hours for the MDMA to wash out of the system sufficiently for the reuptake system to rejig itself and start operating normally again. Okay. And that's why it's often at kind of like that two-day point where we feel like we're, where we've reached, a, you know, a bit of a slump, an emotional slump because the our, our normal system of maintaining a balance hasn't rejigged itself and it's only once okay. the MDMA molecules are all out of the system that it can do that. Wow, that's interesting. Is there anything yeah. you can do to help... Get it back faster, or is it just a bit of an acceptance? Like, oh, no, my serotonin is just down. Um, for a while. Look, there's a lot of uh, ideas out there about what might help. I mean, I, I don't think there's any good science around it yet. Mm-hmm. But if you read, you know, discussion um, sites on the web about people and, and what their experiences are, then some people like to preload before they take the MDMA by taking things that are conducive to serotonin production, mm. uh, like uh, 5-HTP. Um, mm, uh-huh. uh, five, tryptophan. Yeah, 5-hydroxytryptophan is a precursor to serotonin production. Mm. Um, some people, people will take that as a supplement. Some people will take um, complex vitamins because certain uh, B vitamins in particular are implicated in the production of serotonin. 
um, you know, whether those things actually work or not or whether we're just seeing a placebo effect. I don't think there's any really good science around yeah, okay. that just yet. But these are the things that people do mm. and also taking them after the fact. So, mm. you know, maybe the next morning after you take the MDMA, you know, dose up on some complex vitamin Bs. Um, with 5-HTP, uh, I've I've not used it much but I've found that you do need to be careful when you take it because I, I did try it but I found that it, it disrupted my sleep pattern. Yeah, same. Um, I get it too, yeah. Yeah. I, and it gives me crazy dreams, mental dreams. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, so melatonin, which is associated with sleeping, uh, is, is produced from serotonin. It's like a derivative. Okay. So if you mess with serotonin, it can mess with your melatonin levels as well. Okay. Um, but yeah, as far as I know, there's no good science around this yet. Well, and I think my general theory on, on this kind of major downer that happens after MDMA typically is because we go at it like it's a party drug the same way as yeah. everything else. And yeah. so if I'm out partying, having um, MDMA, then I'm likely to be out drinking, possibly having Coke, yes. you know, doing whatever the fuck I'm doing to my body yeah. and not sleeping, not getting the adequate amount of sleep that night because I'm out partying all night. And then I just feel like a piece of shit the next day. Then I eat a bunch of bad food and that will knock on for two days. So naturally you're already, as we just discussed, your neurochemistry is probably going to be a little bit wonky. And then of you're course. just contributing to that with this. Yeah. It's a, it's a complex mixture of different things, not yeah. just the MDMA. Uh, and my understanding is that in a therapeutic sense, um, you know, if somebody is, is suffering uh, markedly from depression to the point where, you know, they're having suicidal thoughts, then it can be a danger, a danger mm -hmm. factor mm -hmm. uh, for giving them MDMA. Um, Have and you, you – oh, sorry. Yeah so, yeah, so you would need to, you know, be very, very careful about doing that in the first place. And then if, if they did have that therapy about monitoring their, their progress and supporting them through what could be a very – uh, harmful slump potentially, you know, mm. yeah. Um, have you uh, read much about the research in ketamine for people that are immediately suicidal? Uh, I have read a little, yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting little yeah. start to it. I mean, yeah. it. I, I've had ketamine myself as well and it, it's a funny thing, whenever you talk to anyone who's had ketamine, it, they usually kind of have a little smile on their face like it's like a nice pet. It's like a nice friend, I don't know, like you're always like, oh yeah, I like yes. ketamine. Yeah. But it's an intense experience. It's definitely not something that you fuck around with and I imagine getting too attached to the what the ketamine feels like makes it, ruins it anyway. Yeah, you, you know, all of these things are, are usually dose dependent and also the experience is very much dependent on set and setting right. which, which means the mindset that you have at the time that you're doing, doing it and then the setting that you do it within so you know who's around you what the physical environment is like how comfortable you feel how safe you feel mm. all of these things impact your actual experience uh, in the altered state so there's lots and lots of different factors and in fact even the astrology of the day, you know, there's, I, I don't know if you've oh, heard wow. of Stanislav Grof, have you heard of him? Yeah. Yeah, yeah so sure. he's a legend in, in the psychedelic world, of course, and he was one of the pioneers of transpersonal psychology. Um, he's, and back before many of these things became illegal, he put thousands of patients through therapy using LSD. And he actually oh. wrote, he wrote a book called LSD Psychotherapy. And he said that the only way that he had any hope of predicting the outcome of someone's psychedelic experience was by looking at the astrology of the day is the only thing he found which actually Whoa. was reliable i know yeah. isn't that mental because you just write it off you got astrology i know idiots yeah 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 exactly <laughs> exactly whoa yeah. so but he he looked at it you know and he looked at a person's astrology for the day and the general astrology of the day and he found that there was a definite connection between that and, and the experience that somebody had 
Wow. That's incredible. Very interesting. Wow. Oh, my God. This is such a good conversation, man. We've already been talking for an hour and 20 minutes. That's insane. Mm -hmm. Um, I have to try and figure out how to make this an hour. One last thing that I wanted to just quickly ask you about before we go is um, obviously we've been talking a lot about using drugs but in a healthy and kind of safe way. Um, One of the other things that you've had a little bit of involvement in is um, harm reduction. Mm -hmm. And that is kind of figuring out how we can get – these drugs, quote unquote, these substances back into the general population in a self and health or a safe and healthy way, or at least reducing the harm that's caused by them when they're used recreationally. Yeah. Yeah. I think the biggest issue we're facing at the moment is because we have prohibition in place, the process of manufacturing and distributing these substances is left to criminals, right? who often ultimately just want to make money out of it. And mm-hmm. so consequently, they, you know, they don't care so much about the purity or what circumstances people are given or, or, or take the, the medications, the drugs under. Mm. Uh, and consequently, we get some bad outcomes, like occasionally a death at a music festival mm. for whatever reason. So, um, And then the government's activity in trying to enforce prohibition uh, is sometimes adding to the harm because, yeah. you know, the presence of police dogs or police at a festival, for example, might make somebody panic and take all their drugs at once. You know, that's that's happened uh, mm. and people have died from that. So it's, um, it's a very tricky situation that we have and uh, it's also complicated by this idea of labelling everything as a drug, you know. We, we've come up with the... It's funny because you go to America and, and the word drug doesn't have the same kind of uh, implications over there. You have drug stores, right, which yeah, are yeah. what we call chemists here um, <laughs> and big signs saying buy your drugs here, which is kind of funny for an Australian. But here in Australia in particular, this label drugs has been just used across the board and it, within that and within the things that are labelled as illicit on our drug schedules, um, we've captured some amazing useful substances which science shows can be incredible medicines like Mm. MDMA, for example, Mm. Uh, and alongside them, you know, we've lumped things that are often harmful like heroin, you know, things that may be not so useful like cocaine, Uh, and so it's a terrible mixed bag. Mm -hmm. And I think the first thing that we need to do is actually start to clean up our discussion and not talk about drugs but be very specific about talking uh, to these different substances in particular and the benefits or the harms that they bring. Yeah, and, yeah. and use and use with each other. I mean, because that's the gross thing about it. When you lump everything in as a drug, then it's like, oh, I'm going to party tonight, so I'm going to take, I'm going to drink a shitload of alcohol and we got some tabs of acid, we're going to get some MDMA, we're going to have some ket, you know, and then all of a sudden you're having this fucking mental cocktail of shit that should never be mixed together ever. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you don't know what the fuck's going on and then everyone says, oh, drugs are bad, and it's like, no, the education on drugs is bad. It's terrible. That's right. You know, if you if you go to a doctor and you get a prescription for a pharmaceutical, you go to the chemist, you get it in a box, it comes with a pamphlet that you can open and read that's got all the side effects and, you know, don't drive a car when you take mm. this or, you know, whatever. There's none and of you that. know what's in it. You that, know yeah, the purity. And you know it's pure, but, but mm. we don't have that because of prohibition. So I think one of the first things that needs to happen on a sort of government level is we need to reschedule 
these drugs according to the science because yeah. our drug schedules are not related to science at the moment. Right. The science, yeah, cannabis, for example, is a fucking uh, joke. Uh, yeah, exactly. You know, it, it's, a, it's an amazing medicine. Mm. Um, yet it's, it's right there, you know, we're scheduled with, with everything else. Um, so we need, to, we need to change that. We need to have a science-based system for classifying these things as harmful or not. Uh, and, um, you know, in the meantime, we need to do whatever we can to reduce the harm under this system, which really it doesn't work. Uh, things like pill testing, for example, at music festivals, I think is a great start. Mm-hmm. And also having places where people can go at the festivals to be looked after if they're having a hard time. And our organisation, PRISM, works closely with DanceWise in Victoria oh, cool. uh, to do that. So DanceWise... Um, are run by Harm Reduction Victoria, which is actually a government-funded agency, which is amazing. Awesome. Uh, and they go to music festivals. They set up a, a tent, uh, the DanceWise tent, where if somebody's tripping hard and having a difficult time, they can come, their friends can bring them to the DanceWise tent. There are people there who, who know, you know, what drugs do, um, who understand uh, whether medical treatment is needed or not. They're usually parking the, the dance, DanceWise tent next to the medical tent anyway. So if somebody needs medical attention, it's only right next door. Right. And, and it's a place where people can go sit, be reassured by somebody who knows what, what's going on, that things are okay and you're just going to have to wait a few hours until this wears off and you'll be fine, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and often the times it, it's as simple as that. Sometimes, I mean, I've, I've worked at a, a vol, as a volunteer um, and along with the other prison guys with DanceWise on a couple of occasions and sometimes you'll get come, somebody coming in who who really is in need of medical care, you know, like they're having a massive anxiety attack. It doesn't matter what you say to them, they're not going to calm down. You know, sometimes they'll be scratching the skin off their fingers or whatever and you have to actually go to a doctor and say, look, this, we, you know, we need to sedate this person. or <laughs> Give them a tranquilizer. Something has to happen, yeah. Wow. But um, And on a personal uh, level for, the, for a person taking drugs, are there some recommendations like, say, with MDMA, for example, because uh, there has been some research on how to reduce the harm of MDMA while you're taking it because most of the MDMA-related deaths are due to um, dehydration or heat exhaustion. Yeah, look, I, I wouldn't make any recommendations um, simply because of the, the system that we have in place here where drug use is illegal and if I, if I make a recommendation then I could be seen to be supporting uh, oh, the illicit use, use of yeah, drugs and, and uh, because of my connection to PRISM and the, the hope to get some legal research up and running, you know, we, we can't connect those dots unfortunately. We have to, we have to play by the rules. Um, however, you know, if, if somebody was in a country where MDMA was, was legal uh, and uh, they wanted to um, care for themselves, you know, while they were using it, then that would be a different story somewhere like, say, Portugal where mm-hmm. it's de- decriminalised. Um, you know, I think you summed up a lot of this stuff before when you said that people go out and they mix it with alcohol, you know, they don't keep track of how much they're taking, they, they uh, do arduous activities where they're dehydrating themselves, yet they won't sleep properly, you know, mm. and then they, they wonder why they've got a bad uh, come down. Yeah. Um, so it's simply, it's really about self-care, it's about responsible use so educating yourself about, you know, what is a, an average dose, um, taking notice of the effects that these things have on you and, you know, maybe if you take two pills and you wake up the next day and you don't feel good, then maybe don't take two pills next time, yeah, you know. Yeah. Simple things. 
um, remaining hydrated, um, not mixing them with alcohol or anything that could be detrimental because sometimes, you know, you take two different things and there are contraindications. So the effect of one will actually change the effect of the other one in a, in a harmful way. Mm. Um, education is a, is a big part it's of it too. It's a massive one. Yeah. yeah. And that's the sad thing. Like you just touched on a great point there. It's so sad that people that know the most about this shit can't talk about it because it's fucking illegal. Yeah. And you don't want to be seen to promoting drug use. Because I agree. I don't think that we should be promoting drug use. But people are going to take drugs. Whether we like it or not, it's going to happen. And yes. what we really want is for people to do it as safe as possible and yeah. as healthy as possible. Yeah, yeah. E- exactly. And, and hopefully, you know, somewhere down the track, hopefully we'll, we'll get a science-based drug scheduling system. Yeah. So the law changes and those things that have been scientifically proven to be beneficial medicine, medicines, um, less harmful than yeah. alcohol and tobacco, for example, you know, they, they won't be illicit anymore. They'll be mm. available and, and you'll be able to buy them knowing that they're pure. You'll be able to consult people who can give you the exact information about what to do and what not to do when you take yeah. it, you know, yeah, um, and, and we can have open education out there and those sorts of things. So um, I really believe the world is heading in this direction. You know, there are a lot of countries that are pioneering this kind of thing. Mm. Australia is backward when it comes to, to this process and progress at the moment you know we're lagging behind all the countries that we like to compare ourselves to you know like the the uk and canada and the us for example Uh, it really as far as i can figure it comes down to conservative attitudes particularly within our institutions like our educational institutions and our medical profession Mm. Uh, people are afraid to take a risk um, you know, they're, they're worried about the impact on themselves or the institution of being seen to be doing something that's socially unacceptable. Mm. And, of course, the fact that it's generally regarded as socially unacceptable yeah. by older generations is a big factor there. Yeah. But um, as, as we get the generational change happening, you know, people who've grown up going to music festivals and popping pingers and know that, you know, they didn't die they're eventually going to become politicians and doctors and this is happening already. Yeah. Um, you know, we're getting PhD students coming through now who've grown up this way and they, they know that these things are actually useful if they're mm. used in the right way. Right. So it, it will change. You, you know, that just kind of sparked an idea in my head. Um, we could end on this but uh, – in the same way we've been talking about fractals and little things that expand into bigger things, you're talking about a person that's isolated and lives in like a small country town and they don't are they aren't exposed to change a lot. Australia is very isolated. That's right. Geographically that's compared yeah. to everywhere else. So maybe Ge- Yes. Yeah. Yeah, maybe that's why we struggle. Yeah, that's that's huh. quite possibly part of it. And plus, you know, we, we have um agriculture is a big thing here. It's one of our major industries, you know, and that I, I alluded to that agricultural mindset where th- Things don't change radically so much. Um, you know, you can do the same thing over and over and over again and generally it works except when the climate changes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Well, thank you so much. What a great conversation. Pleasure. Um, where can people find you if they want more information? Uh, so the PRISM website is uh, prism.org.au. That's our research organisation. My personal website is emanate.net, spelled E-M-A-N, the figure eight, dot net. Cool. Awesome, man. I'll have links to all that on my website and everywhere. And um, yeah, excellent. And also I do a, a radio show Monday mornings oh, uh, right. on Bay FM in Byron Bay, which is streamed on bayfm.org. It's called Future Sense, where I'm talking about the, the evolution of human consciousness and, and the future, basically. You've been listening to Future Sense, a podcast edited from the radio show of the same name broadcast on Bay FM in Byron Bay, Australia at bayfm.org. 
Future Sense is available on iTunes and SoundCloud. The future is here now. It's just not evenly distributed.